You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Matthew McGinty from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled The Rise and Fall of Sir Connors Clifford. Sir Connors Clifford arrived in Connacht in February 1597 to take up the position of Governor of Connacht, a job he obtained at a most difficult time as the country was in the midst of the Nine Years' War, a rebellion led by the Earl of Tyrone and Red Hugh O'Donnell. When Clifford arrived in Connacht, the fortunes of the government there were at a low ebb, as O'Donnell had recently journeyed through Sagar Roscommon in Galway, where he brought some of his wavering allies back into line and devastated the lands of those who opposed him. O'Donnell's campaign was very successful as he was, enable, he was able to reaffirm his control over the province and Clifford, just prior to taking up his post as governor, described the province as as desperate as it ever was. Clifford's task to regain Connacht from O'Donnell was daunting as he had to contend with an under-resourcing of both soldiers and supplies which greatly crippled him, often preventing him from taking the field against the Connacht rebels. Yet in just over a year, Clifford was able to report to the Privy Council that he had fully recovered the province for the government. How had Clifford achieved this? He broke up O'Donnell's Connacht Confederacy by exploiting the fractured nature of Gaelic society and using that to encourage a number of defections and enlist the military assistance of those who abandoned O'Donnell. Was this assistance that enabled Clifford to overcome his lack of resources and overthrow and expel those who remained loyal to O'Donnell? Yet the tactic of taking advantage of the fissures in Gaelic society and u- utilising Gaelic allies during periods of conflict was a much debated issue among Tudor government o- officials. On one side there were those who fully endorsed the strategy and thought it was the best way to defeat Tyrone and O'Donnell's Gaelic Confederacy. Sir Geoffrey Fenton was of this opinion because he thought it would trouble the greatest captain in Europe to prevail against these rebels without working some of them to Her Majesty's part and to serve against them. Others were, however, dubious against, or fully against using Gaelic allies, as they mistrusted them, believing they were spies for the rebels and furnishing them with supplies they had gotten from the government. The Earl of Essex, during his failed campaign against her own in 1599, was one of those that conceived a very negative view of his Gaelic allies and thought they were only assisting the government when it suited their interests. So he that will bring a hundred horse or 200 or 300 foot into the field to revenge a private injury or upon some private quarrel will, will protest and proclaim himself utterly una- unable to bring six men or a horse into the field for Her Majesty's service. Gaelic allies could certainly be unreliable and Clifford would find out this to his detriment shortly after he re-established government control over the province as a number of his Gaelic supporters abandoned him and once again joined O'Donnell. Therefore, by using Clifford's example, I will. This presentation will show how effective the policy of exploiting the fractured nature 
Gaelic society and using the assistance of Gaelic allies could be while also showing the potential pitfalls of the policy. Uh, due to the time constraints, I will mainly be focused on uh, Tibbet, Nalongberg, and uh, Brian O'Rourke. Before I uh, discuss them, I'll just give a bit over, uh, brief overview of the fractured nature of Gaelic society and how the government could profit from it. Gaelic Ireland's system for dealing with the issue of succession was known as uh, Tanner Street, and it was a major reason why Gaelic society was so divided and quarrelsome. Under the laws of Tanner Street, the eldest son of the clan chieftain that had died was not entitled to, see, to succeed his father. Instead, the clan chieftain was succeeded by his Tanisha, who was a designated successor that was supposed to be elected by the followers of the clan. The election of a Tanisha was supposed to be done while the current clan leader was alive, and members of the Durfin were eligible to be elected, and these were members of the clan who were within the descendants of a common ancestor in four generations. So theoretically, anyone with a great-grandfather that had been a clan chieftain was eligible to be selected as Tanisha. When selecting a new Tanisha, seniority and strength were at the most important criteria. As James Ware noted when he stated that the Irish usually chose as a Tanisha the strongest and he who has the most followers, often the eldest and most worthy of the blood and name of the deceased. The Elizabethan poet Edmund Spencer likewise noted this preference for an elder Tanisha and he stated that the Irish do nominate and elect for the most part not the eldest son nor any of the children of the Lord deceased but the next to him of blood that is the eldest and worthiest as commonly the next brother unto him if you have any or the next cousin germain or so forth Spencer also explained the rationale behind this dislike of young sons succeeding their father he says that this indifference to young sons uh, inheriting their father's position as chief stems from their belief that a young son would not be able to defend his lands and people from his English and Irish neighbours so instead they must look for the eldest and strongest of their clan to protect the clan's interests Theoretically, the transition from one leader to another should have been relatively smooth, with the Tanisha simply replacing the deceased chief and a new Tanisha chosen in his place. In reality, things very rarely, very rarely went this easily, as when a chieftain died, who was Tanisha was often irrelevant, and instead destructive wars between the claimants for the position of clan chieftain usually ensued. George Carew's description of the aftermath of the, the O'Carroll chieftain in 1600 best encapsulates the typical fallout of the death of a clan chieftain. Karu stated that four of the O'Carrolls are in competition for the lordship of that country, wherein, before the question be decided, it will cost much blood. In the end, the new chieftain was usually, as an O'Donnell chieftain put it, the man who could win that position by stronger hand and force of arms. Yet, even when a clan, uh, even when a clan member managed to become chieftain, the issue was far from settled as those claimants who had lost out did not give up so easily and would depose the chieftain and install themselves as a new, as a new chieftain when the opportunity presented itself. The situation of succession was even further complicated by the government's attempts to introduce their system of inheritance, primogeniture, so basically the eldest son inherited his father's lands. So then there could often be conflict between the eldest son of the deceased chieftain put into English common law as proof that he was entitled to his father's lordship and the Tanisha or other members of the clan pointing to the laws of Tanisha or using force of arms to uh, make good on their claims to the clan's lordship. This internal clan dissension played in the hands of the government, especially when a chieftain rebelled. The government could appeal to a rival of the rebellious chieftain for assistance against him, 
offering him the clan's lordship if he successfully aided them to overthrow this rebellious chieftain. Many were, many were receptive to the government's overtures as an alliance with the government and the military assistance that accompanied it was for many contenders to a clan's lordship the best opportunity they had to obtain the said lordship. Clifford hoped to pacify Connacht by recruiting disgruntled clan members to his cause and events in Mayo prior uh, to his arrival gave him ample opportunity to do so. There was plenty of potential allies for Clifford and Mayo following Tibbet, McWalter, Keita, Burke's ascension to the position of clan chieftain and his acquisition of the title of McWilliam Burke in December 1597. Tibbet had become chieftain because of interference by Reggie O'Donnell as Reggie O'Donnell summoned all the contenders for the McWilliam Burke title and the leaders of other Mayo clans to meet him at the inauguration of Rathad Issa Kidd in the, of, in the barony of Kilmaine so they could debate the issue of who the next clan chieftain should be. Everyone, uh, everyone in bold there is a contender, while the old ones not on bold, they're just the clan chieftains who were there, and they had the vote. They, uh, these clan chieftains were uh, called to basically elect the, the new chieftain. So uh, O'Donnell actually had, yeah, had to, actually surrounded the wrath with soldiers and excluded them all, called in the, the Mayo clan leaders in one by one to give their uh, opinion on who should the new leader should be. William Burke of Shrill was a popular choice as he was the eldest and therefore under Tanistry they deemed him the lawful successor. However, O'Donnell overruled them and instead installed Tippett Walter Keita Burke as McWilliam Burke, even though under Tanistry he was the least suitable, seeing how he was the youngest contender. But the reason O'Donnell chose him was largely because he had, Tippett had spent time with O'Donnell and Connell following his expulsion from his lands of Mayo a few years previous, and thus he became a close ally of O'Donnell and heavily dependent on him. By choosing Tibbet, O'Donnell hoped to exert control over him as clan as chieftain of the McWilliam Burks and rule through proxy. However, O'Donnell's disregard for Tanistry and the wishes of the Mayo men caused outrage among the Burks. Bingham's comments, Richard, so Richard Bingham's comments about the fallout of O'Donnell's contentious decision conveys his anger. Bingham stated that the Burks were a difference amongst themselves about the new captain of the country because Donald O'Donnell, contrary to the Irish law and custom, has elected the youngest and unworthiest as they hold it. Fenton likewise observed the anger O'Donnell's choices, uh, choice had caused and stated that the conic men summit greatly these creations that O'Donnell has made. Fenton, the reason that this for Fenton, the reason for this anger was O'Donnell's choosing someone that was of his faction and, ba and base and far off from that dignity. This development was potentially very beneficial for the government because it meant that there was a number, a number of disgruntled claimants for the McWilliam Burke lordship who opposed Tibbet McWalter and were willing to ally themselves with the government and depose him. Fenton was alive to this fact and remarked that O'Donnell's actions had given, O'Donnell's actions had given the government a fit opportunity to nourish them in this division and get some of them to overthrow the rest. We talk about Tibbet along Burke, so to make things easier, I'm going to refer to him as Tibbet and Tibbet Walter as McWilliam Burke, just so you don't get confused by all the Tibbets, Burks. Uh, Tibbet along Burke was one of the disappointed claimants for the title of McWilliam Burke, and he was identified as the government as the best candidate to recruit, as he was seen as to have better means than any other to pull McWilliam down. 
Clifford began negotiations with Tibbet not long shortly after the, his arrival, and by May 1597, Clifford had secured Tibbet's submission, with Clifford promising Tibbet the lands of McWilliam and other Burke rebels for a service against them. But instead of the title of McWilliam Burke, he was willing to take an English title deemed appropriate. Tibbet's mission immediately paid dividends and Clifford was able to banish McWilliam, fled to Chicano, and Fenton put the banishment, banishment down to the separating of Tibbet and Long from McWilliam. Over the rest of 1597, Tibbet would continue to serve Clifford admirably. In June, O'Donnell went to Mayo with McWilliam in tow to reestablish re him in the country and left him with 800 men for his defence once, once they got there. Clifford sent Tibbet Nilong and O'Connor Slago, another of his Irish allies, to deal with McWilliam, and they forced him to flee Connacht once again. However, O'Donnell was resolute in his mission to resettle his ally in Mayo, so in September, O'Donnell sent McWilliam, along with 700 men, back to Mayo. Tibbet Nilong encountered McWilliam, killed 40 of his men, including his brother, and by October 1597, McWilliam had once again absconded to Chicano. Tibbet's service is a, the, is a great example of the effect, effectiveness and benefits of using Gaelic allies to suppress a rebellious threat like O'Donnell's Connacht Confederacy. And without Tibbet's military assistance, it is unlikely that Clifford could achieve the success he did in Mayo. This is evident during McWilliam's failed attempt to sell Mayo in September. When McWilliam returned, Clifford lacked the supplies to take the field and affront him. So if not for having Tibbet along on hand to harass McWilliam, McWilliam would have faced little or no opposition. This was not the first or last time Clifford had problems taking the field due to inadequate resources, and the problem constantly hindered him during his time as governor. Without his Irish allies like Tibbet, Clifford would not have been able to overcome his difficulties with insufficient resources, and overcoming them was a significant achievement as the mustermaster, Morris Kaifen, noted, Kaifen was especially impressed with what Clifford achieved in Mayo in spite of his limited resources, and he described Clifford's success in Mayo as a, as a work very wonderful, considering the great defects here of vicuals, monies, and munitions. Clifford knew that encouraging O'Donnell's allies to defect and utilizing their assistance was the only way to combat his deficiencies. And on one occasion he stated, Of means I have none to carry the companies with me for any journey, so I, I sought by persuasion to break the traitors amongst themselves. Over the first half of 1598, Tibbet and Clifford went from strength to strength in Mayo. McWilliam was still banished, all his castles had fallen and his best men killed. McWilliam's position was so dismal that Clifford even claimed that there was not a man in Ireland as poor as McWilliam. Clifford knew that Tibbet and his Gaelic allies played a central role in defeating McWilliam and even told the Privy Council that McWilliam had many of his best men killed and it was Tibbet Nilong and such as, the, as first submitted to Her Majesty's mercy have drawn much of this blood with their own hands. While Clifford was experiencing success in Mayo, he was also endeavouring to lure Brian O'Rourke of Leitrim away from O'Donnell's O'Connor Confederacy. O'Rourke was a strong chieftain with an estimated force of about 600 men, and his lordship was strategically located on the Connacht-Ulster border. O'Rourke's strength made him an important component of O'Donnell's Gaelic uh, Confederacy, so, so much so that Clifford viewed him as as dangerous as any man in action this day except Tyrone. His loss would certainly be a bitter blow to O'Donnell and a great boon for Clifford. To instigate O'Rourke's defection from O'Donnell, Clifford sent O'Connor Slago to negotiate him, and he managed 
successfully to induce uh, O'Rourke into leaving O'Donnell's kind of confederacy. And formal negotiations began between O'Rourke and Clifford in 1598, in February 1598. The two were able to come to agreement and O'Rourke submitted, and this defection was partially motivated by his desire to secure his position in Leitrim with government help. As an anonymous author of a track titled A Description of Ireland, Anno 1598 claimed that, Clifford, that O'Rourke was afraid his half-brother Tig would depose him with the help from O'Donnell. Tig had been a long-time rival of his brother and thought he should possess Leitrim, pointing to the fact that under English common law he was a rightful owner as his brother was of illegitimate birth and therefore had no right to their father's land. Clifford was delighted with securing O'Rourke's loyalty and thought so highly of the assistance that O'Rourke would provide him that he declared with O'Rourke and 1,200 men he could do more good in three months than he could do with 2,300 men in a year. A claim that highlights the significance Clifford placed on the contribution of his Gaelic allies he recruited. Following the acquisition of O'Rourke's loyalty, Clifford was confident enough in his position in Connacht that in April 1598 he reported back to the Privy Council that he had largely recovered Connacht for the government. Clifford's recovery in Connacht highlights the positive aspects of the strategy of taking advantage of the fractured nature of Gaelic society and using the military assistance of the Gaelic allies, as well as showing how effective the tactic was. His effectiveness was shown by the fact that Clifford managed to secure the province by being under-resourced and, without himself, securing any resounding victory in the field against O'Donnell's confederates. Clifford's major military expedition during his period as governor was actually a complete disaster, as he attempted to capture the very strategically important Ballyshannon Castle. But while he was besieging the castle, he ran low on food and munitions and was outnumbered, so he was forced to retire. However, because Clifford's strong position was almost solely based on the support of his Gaelic allies, his strong position was built on shaky foundations, so the loyalty of Gaelic Gaelic allies could always be fleeting, as Clifford was soon to experience when uh, O'Rourke abandoned him. O'Rourke had received word that the Earl of Ormond was going to support his brother Ty's claim to the O'Rourke lordship, a move not motivated by what service Ty could do for the government, as Tig had few followers and resources, so his defection would do little for the government. Rather, Ty grew up with the, house, uh, the household of Ormond, so it was Ormond's personal relationship that prompted him to back Ty. O'Rourke was now worried that his agreement with Clifford would be overruled by Ormond and his lordship would be given, would be given, would be given over to his brother, as Ormond was, uh, at this point, Lord Lieutenant, so he was actually a lot higher up in the government than... Uh, Clifford, so he would have had the power to kind of overrule him. Uh, O'Donnell actually saw O'Rourke's concern as an opportunity to win him back, and to do so, uh, O'Donnell imprisoned Tighe and offered to hand him over to O'Rourke if O'Rourke returned to the Gaelic Confederacy. O'Rourke, doubting if Clifford could keep his promises, deciding the best course for him to keep hold of his lordship was to return to O'Donnell. In October 1598, things went from bad to worse for Clifford as O'Donnell raided the province and Clifford, yet again, being because of a lack of resources, could do little to stop O'Donnell. Some of Clifford's allies, such as the Northwest Common Chieftain, Conor O'Rourke McDermott, seeing how weak Clifford was and how he could not defend them, decided to return to O'Donnell's Connacht Confederacy. O'Donnell also went, uh, sent McWilliam back into Mayo, and this time Tibbon alone could not repulse McWilliam. McWilliam was now in a strong position and with a force of around 2,000 foot and 200 horse in Mayo, and Tibbet Long was, could not cope with this research at Dominic William and was forced to live off a boat off the coast. 
the work done by Clifford, the work that Clifford had done to rid Connacht of O'Donnell and rebellion was undone. And I dejected Clifford told the Privy Council that the recovery of this revolted province is changed on to the contrary. O'Donnell remained paramount in Connacht for the remainder of the year, and the situation did not change until the first half of 1599 with the arrival of the Earl of Essex. This arrival heralded a new attempt of the Crown to regain, to regain the ground that they had lost in the province. Part of the government's plan to retake Connacht involved sending O'Connor Slago, who had briefly fled to England, back into the pro- province to oppose O'Donnell, and he took up residency at Colony Castle in Slago. But he was quickly besieged by O'Donnell. Essex was determined to relieve O'Donnell and ordered Clifford to break the siege. In August 1599, Clifford set out for Slago with a force of around 2,000, but he was met by the forces of O'Rourke and uh, McDermott in the Curlew Mountains. Clifford was defeated and killed with around 250 of his men. Clifford had hoped that the likes of O'Rourke would have been the key to securing the province, but instead O'Rourke and McDermott proved to be the death of him. Clifford's severed head was given to O'Donnell, who showed it to O'Connor Slago at Colony. Once O'Connor Slago, seeing that Clifford and his hopes for help had gone, decided to surrender, and he was given an ultimatum by O'Donnell, join him or face imprisonment. O'Connor took the prudent option and joined with O'Donnell and his confederacy, so O'Donnell was firmly back in control of the province. In conclusion, Clifford's governorship of Connacht shows both the pros and cons of using Gaelic uh, chieftain as allies. Clifford had temporarily recovered the province in the face of crippling under-resourcing, and Clifford's ability to prevail, prevail over this problem was largely down to the defection of O'Donnell's allies and the aid, these lo- and the aid of these local allies. Well, this demonstrates the positive of using Gaelic defectors and how effective this course of action could be. However, these allies defect; these Gaelic allies defected once, and they had no qualms about defecting back to O'Donnell when it suited them. The Irish allies' undependability meant that relying on them was a risk and could backfire, as it did with Clifford. For Clifford, there was little choice but to gamble and employ Gaelic allies due, his, due to his lack of money, men, and munitions. But while Clifford's poor resources was the reason he had to resort to employing Gaelic allies, it was also the reason why the strategy was likely to fail, because Clifford's insufficient resources meant he lacked the means to protect his Irish allies from O'Donnell and his, and his fellow rebels. Clifford's inability to defend his Irish associates was the cause for many a loss. It was the cause for the loss of many uh, would-be loyal subjects, because when they saw Clifford's weakness, they thought the best thing to do to save their lands and livelihood was rejoin the rebellion. Clifford's previous success, however, cannot be forgotten, and if properly supplied and without Ormond Ruin's deal with or Clifford may have, may have been able to keep hold of his Irish allies and keep the province fully subdued. Therefore, the use of Gaelic allies was a risk-reward venture, and for Clifford, the gamble did not pay off. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.